welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Hello again, and welcome to The Gold Exchange Podcast. I'm John Flaherty. I'm here with Keith Wiener, founder and CEO of Monetary Metals. We often hear the phrase money printing, and it conjures images of a giant printing press spitting out sheets of $100 bills somewhere in the basement of the Fed. But is that what is actually happening? Uh, Keith wrote an article entitled, What is Money Printing? several years back. And it lays out a series of examples that, that build on each other to make the case that the Fed is not actually printing money, but in fact doing something else a little more nuanced. What is that something else, you ask? Listen on. Hopefully this episode will provide an epiphany or two. When I hear the word epiphany, I can't help but think of the Simpsons movie where Homer is in this yurt somewhere in Alaska having a ayahuasca trip. And uh, the epiphanies that he starts to have are that bananas are a a great source of potassium and my favorite, that Americans will never embrace soccer. Sorry for that tangent, but uh, (laughs) that's what comes to mind when I hear the word epiphany. Anyway, let's get into this article, Keith. You first start by talking about Henry the homeowner. Right where Henry goes and finds the perfect house, borrows some money, and gets a mortgage. And you ask the question: Is is he printing money? Why don't you tell us what 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 concept you're trying to introduce here with this first example? So I, I guess the backdrop backdrop to this is I'm trying to introduce the concept of the balance sheet that you know people look at you have an asset and think okay you got rich. So suppose Henry home, homeowner forget what he's borrowing for a minute, he suddenly comes into possession of a, of a new house that's worth, I think, maybe in that article, I might have said $100,000, but in light of how crazy the real estate market has gone recently, maybe it's a million-dollar house, come into a million-dollar asset, and um, does that mean he's a million dollars richer? No, of course not. It means if you look at the other side of his balance sheet, the, the, the house is the asset. If you look at the other side of his balance sheet, he has a liability of... Let's say this is the world of um, zero down payments. There's a million dollar liability to match his million dollar asset. And so all he's done is he's borrowed a million to buy a million dollar asset. He's not actually richer. The, the appearance of, of riches or the illusion of riches, which is this is an aside, will come as the Fed continues to drive the interest rate lower and asset prices go up and they call this the wealth effect. I've said many times the wealth effect is not wealth in the way that pasteurized, homogenized, um, air-blown cheese whip from a can is not cheese. So he has a million-dollar liability, a million-dollar asset. He has borrowed to buy an asset, uh, and he's not richer. Gotcha. All right, the next, uh, the next individual here is Barry the bondholder. No real difference here. Same example. He borrows money to buy a bond. Barry is only different from Henry in that he bought a bond instead of a house. So any, anything to add there? Well, what I wanted to show is that whether you buy a tangible asset, whether you buy a financial asset, the concept of borrowing to buy an asset, again, looking at the balance sheet, million-dollar liability to finance the purchase of a million-dollar asset, you haven't created any new wealth. Uh, now, obviously, if you buy a bond, the bond is an income-producing or yielding asset. And so then as the interest payments come in, and of course, you have to pay interest on the money you borrowed. If you borrowed at a lower interest rate, let's say you borrowed at 0.25%, you're lucky enough to be able to borrow at, let's say, LIBOR, short-term LIBOR, 
and you're doing duration mismatch, and this is a nice long-term mortgage, maybe you're making 2.25% uh, on, uh, and that wouldn't be government securities at that point, that would be some sort of corporate. You're, you're earning 2.25%, you're paying 0.25%, and you're earning a, a net spread of 2%, you're creating wealth uh, you know, there, but not, not on the balance sheet on the asset versus liability. Gotcha. So now let's shift to Frank the Flipper. Frank takes out short-term hard money loans, say, buys the house across the street that's shabby, paints the walls, fixes the roof, and then sells, sells the house and, re, and repays the note. So you say Frank differs from Henry and that he has to sell the asset to repay his short-term funding. But any money printing in this example? Yeah, so, so what I'm doing in this article, and I guess this, this is worth underscoring, is, is making a series of incremental uh, examples, each one to introduce an idea or an idea in a different light. Frank the Flipper is now obviously in the business of turning assets over and borrows, buys the asset, does something, turns it, turns it, sells it. You know, as, as you noted, he repays the loan not by amortization, by earning an income that, that pays it. Uh, and even in the case of, of the bondholder, he's able to pay the loan because he's earning uh, interest on the bond he bought. In this case, he's being able he's able to repay the loan by liquidation of the asset. He's selling the asset into the market, and then essentially someone else is taking over financing it. So it moves elsewhere in the banking system balance, collective balance, aggregate balance sheet, and he's out of the loop. All right, so now we ratchet up Frank's example with his brother Magnus. You point out that Magnus is able to set up kind of an instant self-underwriting uh, mechanism whereby the moment he finds a house, he can press a button, borrow the money, asset is improved and sold and returned, but that starts to happen in, in, in succession one after another. So the point you make is Magnus is different from, from Frank because his good credit persuades the bank to give him discretion to initiate his own loans. But any, any money printing here? Right. So obviously I'm, I'm ratcheting it up. I'm now saying that he is getting a loan, but of his own recognizance. He doesn't go paperwork in hand to the bank and say, would you give me a loan? And the bank wait, makes him wait six weeks. So um, in this case, he doesn't have to go to the bank per se, that his internal controls are so good, his valuation methodology, he's using, you know, the bank wants him to find three comps. His documentation is impeccably prepared. He has auditors and other means of internal and external controls. And the bank have become comfortable enough with him. They've given him some sort of limit, obviously. But within those limits, he can literally self-initiate loans. And then, of course, the bank will review. And if they find that he that the rules are cheated a little bit, then they'll take away his privileges. And so I've introduced the variable in this one that he is uh, self-issuing. He is printing, if I can use that term, his own mortgages. But is that money printing? No, it's not. No, there's, a, there's an offsetting component to it. So the next example is Bob the banker, which is Barry the bondholder's cousin. And this is basically just the same um, same ratchet, right, as, as Magnus to Frank in that uh, Bob the banker has um, the ability to push a button and buy as many bonds as he wants. Anything to add with this? Well, obviously, we're, we're getting closer and closer to the Fed's model. But again, you've got a, you've got a commercial bank Presumably, its internal controls are really strong. It's audited. It has all kinds of things in place to make sure that it wouldn't, 
you know, borrow money in order to slip it out the back door to uh, to Bob and his family. You know, the money is always going into buying the bonds. That's their business model to buy bonds. You know, some people would say the banks print money. They might balk. You know, they, they might they might say, yeah, on all the previous examples, no money printing, but this is a bank and therefore it's printing. To which I would say, I saw a quip somebody on social media recently said, there are two kinds of economists in the world, those who understand the balance sheet and those who don't. And, um, you know, again, this is a bank, it's a balance sheet business. It adds a million dollars in liability in order to finance the addition of a million dollars in asset. And as long as that's what it's doing, then there's no, um, no free money being created there. So I've, I think this is a big uh, question out there. Maybe we, we dedicate a separate episode to it, but is this related to fractional reserve lending and the notion that when you borrow for a mortgage, say that, that the banks just conjure that up and that money, quote unquote, is borrowed into existence out of thin air? You know, I, I think there are, are some other confusions related to fractional reserve banking. It may be better to leave that to another episode. I, I, I will say that in what is now called fractional reserve banking today, there are multiple things, you know, compounded on top of each other. And that's usually the case with contentious political issues. One side is looking at one aspect of it. Another side is looking at another aspect of it. And both of those aspects are bundled into a single word so that when that word is said... The two respective factions, if I can say that without attending a pun on fractional reserve banking or any other issue, each hear that word and then immediately in their mind picture their aspect of the problem. And one of the problems we have today is duration mismatch. Is the borrowing short or particularly borrowing, you know, with, with zero duration, you know, overnight money or demand deposits from bank depositors and then buying long-term assets like, you know, 10-year treasury bonds or 30-year mortgages. And that duration mismatch is absolutely a destructive phenomenon. I've written about that many times. Let's let's leave. yeah. Let's uh, let's agree to defer the uh, deeper dive on fractional reserve lending to uh, a future episode. So moving on to the next example, we 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 ended with Bob the banker and Bob's son Morgan. I wonder why you picked that name. Uh, expands the family bond business uh, by borrowing from retail savers and corporations. Now, what is the what is the principle here? You know, I'm going to say there's there's also two kinds of economists in the world: those who have really dry and boring names in their anecdotes, and then there's others that use names like Maynard and Ludwig right. and uh, and Morgan. Right. So, so Morgan is obviously in the business of banking. The, the what the change in this example is that he's not going to some banking or corporate lender per se. To find, so he wants to borrow a million dollars. He doesn't have to go to some bank and borrow the million dollars. He now is literally a bank and um, is borrowing the million dollars from the public. He opens his doors. He gets a banking license. He's able to print on his glass FDIC or whatever it is and member uh, of, of whatever um, you know banking association. You know the public is encouraged to walk in, open accounts. All of whom, of course, have the misconception that they have money in the bank and don't quite understand that what they have is a credit to the bank. They have a piece of paper from the bank that the bank says, I promise or we promise to repay your, um, you know, your cash under the terms of this agreement, which may be on demand or may not be. They have a misconception of thinking that means they have money in the bank. Morgan isn't really doing anything all that different from, uh, from his dad. 
Uh, it's just that he's doing it in a more systematized way and has organized a bank as the vehicle in which to do it. 10-4. All right. So final example on the, on the, the ladder here. Uh, you say, let's look at Bill Trader. Another good one, Bill Trader. His firm buys and sells Morgan Banker's debt. So he is a market maker and his trading provides liquidity to the banker's debt paper. And then you go on, you know, he's so successful that the wholesalers begin to accept in payment of their invoices, accept it, meaning the, uh, the debt paper, they accept that for their invoices because it suits them better than the alternatives. And then you ask the question again, does Bill turn Morgan into a money printer? So how is this the last step on the rung here, Keith? So I, I'm trying to remember what I wrote, but what I should, what should, what I want to make clear is that what's becoming liquid and what wholesalers are accepting is bill traders paper, not necessarily Morgan's paper, though that could happen there too, potentially. The bill traders paper becomes liquid enough within certain parts of the economy, people are accepting it as a currency. That is for the settlement and, and clearing of credits uh, between themselves. So party A, you know, let's say buys something from party B and then has to pay, you know, net 90. And then they can pay that off by instead of handing over the money itself, they're handing over bill traders paper and that that's that's being used to clear it. So, so this example obviously in, increments as we're getting closer and closer to what the Fed does. That Bill Trader's paper is more liquid than Morgan's paper, even though Bill Trader is financing Morgan. He issues his paper to buy Morgan's paper, and his paper is more liquid by virtue of what he's doing with duration mismatch in particular, but also in how he set up his structure and a bunch of other things that are out of scope. And so his paper becomes more liquid. It's being used as a medium of exchange. Most people have a confusion, and because in a lot of cases, if you look up the definition of money, they would say medium of exchange. And so arguing from definitions, which is always a dangerous thing to do, by the way, one should never try to deduce from definitions and dictate to reality what the truth needs to be, because this logically follows from my definition. I would argue, well, if your definition logically leads to a contradiction with reality, it's your definition that should be checked, not reality. But um, because money and medium of exchange are so commonly conflated, people say, well, geez, for sure Bill Trader is printing money. Because look, his paper is being used as a medium of exchange. And uh, the answer to that is, yes, you know, currency can be used as a medium of exchange, and currency is not necessarily money, um, as is the case today. Uh, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give away the punchline. Um, the proper definition of money is not whatever happens to circulate as a medium of exchange, which changes as you cross from border to border to border and go to different countries. The definition of money is the most liquid, excuse me, the most marketable, which liquidity is a slightly different concept, the most marketable commodity, so that being gold. Currency, uh, the definition that I would give, is the most marketable credit. So because of how Bill Trader has run his business, his credit is more liquid and, and uh, more marketable than Morgan's. Uh, and so it's been used as currency, not as money in any way. And that adds one more element to the confusion of this succession of examples. Is Bill Trader printing money? Well, he has the same thing in common that all the rest of them do, in that he is issuing a credit to finance the purchase of an asset. That is, he borrows a million dollars 
worth of whatever to uh, to finance the purchase of an asset that's worth a million dollars, whatever. Except in this example, the confusion is people begin to think of his credit issuance as the million dollars. So they've confused the credit paper that says, I owe you a million dollars. That's what Bill Trader issues. They've confused that for the million dollars itself and say, look, Bill Trader has created a million dollars. No, he hasn't. He has just simply said, I owe you a million dollars. In other words, you're his creditor. You've lent him the million uh, and enabling him to, to buy the million dollars worth of Morgan's debt paper. All right. Did you get all that, ladies and gentlemen? That <laughs> that one uh, that one takes a, a bit of uh, noodling, but this is in print. And we encourage you to go and uh, and read it as many times as it takes. Um, okay, Keith. Let's get to the let's get to the bottom line here. Now we arrive at the central bank. Please help us connect the dots with all of these examples that is built up here. What does central bank and how they issue their credit? What does that have in common with these examples? And then what is the major difference that sets them apart from these otherwise free market examples that you detailed? Well, the central bank uh, uh, is a balance sheet entity that is issuing liabilities to finance the purchase of its assets. Its assets are generally financial assets. It doesn't buy the house. It buys the debt paper that financed the house. The Fed is purchasing mortgages. It's also purchasing you know, bank debt and corporate debt and all kinds of things. And of course, government debt. It is uh, emitting highly liquid, highly marketable paper, which we call dollar bills and also electronic dollar credits. And it is doing so of its own recognizance. It is of such high integrity and such strong internal controls and such unquestioned honesty that uh, it is entrusted. I say that um, tongue firmly planted in cheek in case anybody gets the wrong idea because the whole system has gone horribly wrong. But it is, it is entrusted with the power to, you know, to issue uh, its uh, credit paper, these, these dollars, which are highly marketable. In fact, they're so marketable, they trade at zero spread. Marketability is a measure of the loss that one takes to get in and out of it, and that's the bid-ask spread. The bid-ask spread on dollars is, there is no spread. So extremely efficient. Um, and uh, the, the Fed, in addition to that, its assets are turning over rapidly and as one asset, you know, as, as uh, uh, the bond trader or bill trader did, it's buying and in theory it's supposed to be selling. It doesn't really sell very often. But um, as one government bond matures, it's buying another. So it has a lot of turnover at the edge of its balance sheet. It issues credit that everybody considers to be money because they're operating on the definition of money is uh, currency, a medium of exchange. That's the similarities with all the other examples. The difference, of course is that, well, two things. One, uh, although I think most people could probably see that Bill Trader is, since it's not the government, it's not official, um, that maybe what Bill Trader is issuing isn't money um, because the Fed has legal tender laws backing it. But what the Fed emits is indeed money, and then they totally lose sight of the fact that the Fed is doing that to um, finance the purchase of an asset that is a liability to finance an asset. And people also think, well, the Fed's never going to repay you, which is true. Therefore, the liability side doesn't matter. There's no such thing as a liability. And the Fed is just simply, you know, creating uh, uh, money out of thin air. But, the, but the, really, the only difference is that the Fed has been given the legal privilege of being the exclusive 
emitter of currency. Anything else that someone else were to create that is uh, in a currency is, uh, uh, is either highly forbidden or in the case of banks, they have certain limited license to do that, kind of a sub-license under the Fed. So the Fed has been given a legal privilege that uh, nobody should ever be given. Um, and once somebody's been given a legal privilege, getting back to my tongue-in-cheek comments about integrity and trust and so forth, once somebody's been given a legal privilege to be the monopoly issuer of something, then it's just a matter of time. You know, all the, all the principles and all the systems internal to that entity will go bad because that kind of power invites abuse, and sooner or later it will be. You know, we're in relatively late stages of that abuse right now. So, so the Fed is not actually printing, but borrowing. Do I have that right? The Fed is borrowing, period. I will defend that hill to the death. Now, that now, is not incidental, and that is not a rhetorical tactic to, you know, some sort of argument by hyperbole in order to make some other point. That is what it is. It is borrowing. Okay, so we often hear the Fed referred to as the lender of last resort. Is it Would it be more accurate to say they're the, the ultimate borrower rather than the ultimate lender? Well, they're borrowing in order to lend. So it's kind of like, you know, if I, if I sit here and I say I have this magnet that has a magnetic north pole. Well, as we know from physics, there's no such thing as a magnetic, magnetic north pole without a magnetic south pole on the other side of the same magnet. Right? The Fed is borrowing, absolutely, in order to lend, absolutely. It is doing both, and it depends on which side of the trade you want to look at to how you answer that question. Okay, so to our Homer Simpson moment, if the Fed is a borrower, who in fact are the lenders to the Fed? And I'm, I'm going to give a little spoiler alert. You wrote a, a corollary article wherein there's a sign that says, welcome to the poker room. And it says something to the effect of, if you sit down and within the first hour can't tell who the sucker is, it's you. <laughs> so, so Keith, put a bow on this. Who, who, um, who is lending to the Fed? It's you. It's everybody who desires the Fed's credit paper and calls it money and would argue vehemently when I say that is not money, gold is money, and the Fed's emitted paper is credit, they would say that is money. You're wrong. And that would be a vehement knockdown, drag them out fight with virtually the entire world ganging up against poor old me uh, and that particular one. Everybody, including the gold bugs. The gold bugs want the price, want gold to go up. How do they measure upness or downness in terms of the Fed's paper? So they regard you know, the Fed's paper is money. Everybody wants money. Everybody is working there. You know what's off, you know what, you know what's off to get more of what they regard to money. Everybody is, is dumping labor and products on the bid price in order to get more money as they regard it to be money. <clears throat> and why are they doing that? Well, in part, because they have to service their debts. So if you're a farmer who bought a million dollars to get into the farming business, you have to, you never pay it off. But you have to come up with whatever, if the interest rate is 5% on that loan, you have to come up with $50,000 a year uh, to service it. And if you don't service it, they'll take your farm and you probably signed a personal guarantee as well. So they'll take your home and everything else you have uh, if, if you don't service it. So everybody is desperately trying to get their hands on dollars, which happens to be the Fed's credit. And that makes them creditors. Not only does it make them creditors to the Fed, it makes them not only willing creditors to the Fed, it makes them eager 
and highly motivated creditors. They want to become bigger creditors to the Fed because they regard it as money and because they need the money in order to service their debts. Uh, even the gold people, you know, m many of them just look forward to when the price of gold will go up so they can sell their gold and get more of the Fed's credit paper and become a bigger creditor to the Fed. Right? If you buy gold, you are leaving the realm of being, you're leaving the room of Fed creditors. If you own gold, you're not a creditor to anybody. That's kind of the whole point. And uh, when you sell your gold, you're becoming a creditor to the Fed. And they're only concerned with the price of that credit against the price of the gold, not really thinking about, do I want to be a credit to this creditor who is, who's, or to this borrower, excuse me, who is also at the same time the biggest creditor to the biggest profligate borrower in the world, which is the U.S. government. And over the last year, we've seen, uh, assuming that Biden's COVID stimulus relief, whatever you want to call it, bill passes, you know, that profligate borrower has added something like $5.5 trillion to a deficit that was already running at $1.7 trillion. So what is that? $7.2 trillion. They've dug the hole deeper, $7.2 trillion worth this year as compared to last year. And the Fed is the creditor to that borrower. And everybody that owns dollars is the creditor to the Fed. Not a powerful position to be in. Not where you want to be. No, indeed. Well, that's all the time we have today. Uh, please see our show notes again for the link to this article that we referenced. Uh, your homework is to review it until you can explain it to a friend. It will be on the final exam. Thank you for joining us on the Gold Exchange. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.